Israel has embarked on its long forecast move into Gaza. Internet and mobile services have gone down, as we heard. The US is urging the Israelis to be surgical in their attacks, and it warns against a full-scale invasion. 150 underground targets have been hit in Gaza so far. There have been rocket attacks on Tel Aviv from Yemen, skirmishing on the Israel-Lebanon border with the Iran-backed Hezbollah forces, and US fighter jets have attacked Iranian facilities in Syria. We're going to have another State of the World conversation with Waikato University's international law professor Alexander Gillespie, author of the multi-volume series The Causes of War and A History of the Laws of War. Morena Al. Your origin. We're used to savage conflict in the Middle East. What do you see as the difference, possible difference this time? It's the scale of the atrocities and the response. And I think you're seeing Israel has now gone onto a war footing, which means they're in for the long haul. The big difference is that this could become regional. And if it does become regional, I think there's a fair chance that the United States could get involved. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres saying that the Hamas attack on Israel did not happen in a vacuum. An opinion echoed uh, by pro-Palestinian protests up and down New Zealand. Uh, yesterday included. He qualified the statement later, but it was thought that what he said didn't acknowledge the immense brutality of Hamas's attack. And Hamas was not just going after military targets, as it claims. We know how ghastly that incursion was. And now we have the horror of the effects of the Gaza bombardment. I suppose the most salient question is perhaps whether Hamas wants to obliterate the Jewish presence in the Middle East and has squandered chances for rapprochement. Can I ask you about this? Because this history here is ages old and complex, as you reminded us last week. But we also mentioned that 50% of Gazans had been prepared to accommodate a two-state solution. And across the decades, there have been concessions and seeming goodwill on both sides at various times for this idea. It's not a simple history of unrelieved oppression, is it? No, it's not. International relations is a mix of law, ethics and politics. And in law, you can never have a justification for mass murder or hostage taking. But many people in politics will say that there was a context to what's been happening up there. It didn't just come out of the blue sky. With regards to the the two-state solution, I think the most difficult job right now in the world would be to be a cartographer trying to map Israel over what's in it and what's out of it. But if you go back to basics, in 1947, when it was created by the UN, it was meant to be two states, one Jewish, one Arab. There's been a good attempt at peace in the 1990s, but the, the issues we've got to resolve still are Jerusalem, the refugees, the borders, and critically, as you mentioned, the security question about whether you can actually make peace with someone who does not admit to your right to existence. Benjamin Netanyahu, this has been pointed out in the Atlantic Monthly, once said he wanted to be remembered as the protector of Israel. He also said during an interview a while back, the Jewish nation has never excelled at foreseeing danger. We were surprised again and again, and the last time was the most awful one. That won't happen under my leadership. He is doomed by those utterances. What do you expect? I think he's... He will survive the conflict because often a bad leader needs a good war to justify their placement in politics. And you're going to see a prolonged conflict. Whether he'll get back into power at the end of it, I think, is questionable because right now he hasn't got a lot of political support even at home. His self-admitted strategy, according to some media, to prop up Hamas as a counterbalance to the more moderate Palestinian authority in order to keep the Palestinian public divided and prevent a negotiated two-state 
solution. Would you agree with that assessment and has that been a disaster? I think if you're looking at it from where we are at the moment, it's a complete disaster. You've got 200 hostages that are at least unaccounted for and you've got 2 million people in darkness. The process getting up to this point, I don't think he did support Hamas. I think you've had Gaza that's been terribly treated for the last 16 years. The biggest mistake was not making peace with the Palestinian Authority and finding people that you could actually work with. So now it comes to this incursion and the war growing. National Public Radio in the US is reporting that Israeli soldiers are relying on private donations for essential equipment, which sounds like shades of what we heard from Ukraine when the Russians attacked. Do we have an outsized idea of Israel's military capacity? It's being referred to all the time as being dominant in the region, you know, this mighty assemblage of armour right now. Israel was even suggesting it could manage a multi-front war with Hezbollah and even Syria. When you take away the US missiles, how mighty is that military? I think they're ready for the fight. They spend 4.5% of their GDP, which is the second highest per capita in the world on the military. It's $23 billion per year. But if they field their reserves, 600,000 soldiers, 2,000 tanks, at least 350 frontline aircraft, and don't forget, maybe 100 nuclear weapons as well. Do you think there's a prospect, actually, of America persuading Israel not to go all in in Gaza? That would seem to have been what's happening in the past few days. I think it's unlikely. Uh, I think the desire for anger, the, the anger and the quest for revenge right now is pushing them very hard because what happened to Israel is unprecedented. I think the only thing that's holding them back is the fear of what could happen to the hostages and that risk of a two-front war. Looking further afield, Joe Biden's announcement that he'll defend the Philippines if China attacks, and on his watch anyway, the same seems to be true for Taiwan. Uh, Al, we know the big players in the great game, as it's always been called, don't want wholesale war, but nor did they in 1914 and 1939. A Sydney Morning Herald headline this morning, what's the difference between 1939 and 2023? Not enough. Escalation is unpredictable. What sort of escalation might we see in the China Sea, for example? I think it's, you can't deny that tensions are rising and uh what you're likely to see in the Indo-Pacific, but also in other theatres of the world right now, is increasing shouldering of the military where they kind of bump into each other, either on borders or in international space. This is actually more choreographed than it appears to the public because there are rules of what you can and can't do in these areas. The risk is when something unexpected happens, like when someone fires a missile over someone else's country, and that's where it becomes quite dangerous. And looking further afield, um, Ceylon magazine is claiming China's economy to be in a much more parlous state than is officially or even unofficially acknowledged, and this is being referred to as China's Great Leap Backward. We're going to analyse that a bit further later in the morning when we talk about economic headwinds ahead for New Zealand. My question is to do with the knock-on effects of youth unemployment running at a quarter of the entire 16- to 24-year-old population. And a study by the University of Chicago using satellite data of ground light to conclude that the entire Chinese economy amounted to less than half the official figure. That's only one report, of course. But if China's prosperity is truly tanking, there are implications for us. But, and what does history say about implications for conflict as a result? If... China's economy contracts if they get 
catch a cold, we all get sick. There's a, a big economic implication for us. In terms of the link to conflict, we know that historically one of the best ways to avoid conflict is greater economic cooperation and relationships between countries. One of the best tools that we had to escape the Cold War in the 1990s was globalization, economic globalization. But the most recent report from the WTO that came out about a month ago is showing that that's kind of in the middle right now. It's not advancing. It's not going back. But there is a trend towards more countries moving away from an open, predictable global economy. And that is the ladder that we need to keep going forward. Well, in the New York Times, there's an opinion piece why we should fear China more than Middle Eastern war. America is now overcommitted with military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine in the Middle East. We know that Joe Biden's asked Congress for all that money for Ukraine and for Israel and just $2 billion for the Indo-Pacific. Quote, there are good reasons to think that China is opening open to invading Taiwan in the near future and that America could join such a war and lose outright that op-ed piece in the Times. Do you concur? The conventional wisdom in Washington is that Taiwan could be invaded by 2027. But whether that's the conventional wisdom in China is unknown. I think if there, but you, you're certainly seeing tensions in terms of bigger exercises and incursions into the air defense identification zone and more cyber attacks as well. If it did happen, I think if it was conventional and it would depend upon who joined, if Japan joined, if Australia joined, if South Korea joined, maybe the United States would win. But pretty much all the forecasting numbers suggests that it would start conventional but end up nuclear, in which case no one wins. Professor Al Gillespie is with us 24 minutes past 8 and 6-0 to South Africa in the rugby. Seeing as we're talking about the state of the world, you know, present and future, I know you've read the book Z Generation Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth by Ian Garner, and Dr Garner seems to be a reputable commentator on Russian culture. He identifies what he calls Russia's fascist generation and his take on what's happening in the east of Europe is that this conflict isn't really the last gasp of the old Soviet Union. The new fascist symbol is the letter Z. You see it everywhere in Russia. An apocalyptic mindset has captured the young. They've discarded their enchantment with Western culture and the social media we all used to share. They've turned to their own social media and many are fully behind the war with Ukraine and the concept of a new world order and the notion of a kind of purifying destruction. How much truth do you read in what Dr Ian Garner reckons? I think there's a lot of truth and it's a fantastic piece of scholarship. That The big question at the moment is how you can get a man, Mr Putin, can have 80% support from his own public after losing forty to 50,000 dead Russian soldiers in the Ukraine. All the evidence will tell us that press freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly and association, these have all declined rapidly in Russia in recent times. What you're seeing is not a Marxist or Soviet vision, but something of a, a powerful new type of state, which is built upon tradition, the Orthodox Church, anti-Western values and an extreme hatred of the enemy. And, and it doesn't like diversity. No, it doesn't. There are somber stats in his book. A quarter of Russian LGBTQ youth attempted suicide in the 2010s. So he's painting a picture of a dark chauvinistic determination emerging almost out of a kind of nihilism. You would think that might be a real threat to peace, if not in the world, then in the region? Any militarised extreme nationalism is a threat to peace, but we must be very careful not to demonise the entire Russian people. And for me, it's not about trying to find out where, where you've got trouble, but finding out where you've got 
possible solutions. L- look at the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Russians who have fled the country that want that diversity and want the tolerance and want the democracy. Those are the people we need to be looking for towards the future. Well, one inference from his book is that there's not much to stop Western democracies from following in Russia's path. I know we seem to be talking in hyperbolic terms here, but you know I'm just kind of echoing the commentary. Uh, and ru- because countries are adrift and riven, there's always the p- perennial impulse towards totalitarianism to get the house in order and provide purpose. Is that just as possible in the world of 2023 as it has been in the past? Is the world seeing a pendulum swing back? Because the liberal view 10 years ago was that war was over, basically, because nations now saw the way to prosperity was not waging it, but sharing resources, as you mentioned, and so on. And that view has had a rude awakening. I mean, our species seems always to have a kind of visceral desire for conflict, Al. Yeah. The global trend is that democracy is not in the ascent. It seems to have plateaued and the amount of countries which are moving to becoming more not free or not free at all, or only partly free, is is increasing. And so democracy is not increasing. And many people would suggest we are at a bit of a tipping point of history with regards to that. For a long time in the 1990s, we thought we were at the end of history where everyone was going to become liberal in a market-based economy, but that's not the trend. With regards to your question, the amount of war on the planet right now, the depending on what time set you use, there's actually less conflict than there used to be historically. But in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a change and we are seeing more conflict, but not just in terms of conflict within countries, but conflict where you've got one country and outsiders joining that. We very rarely have conflicts between the superpowers and that trend is down. But if there is another one, it would be a calamity. A somber note to end on. Thank you for your time, Professor Al Gillespie, on Sunday morning.